Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Delays are hampering the COVID vaccine rollout in California. Not having the capacity vaccinators and not having the capacity storage, I think, need delays. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. An Escondido American Legion post commander is removed from national leadership. He appears to have been pretty active in talking about his uh, affiliation with the Proud Boys. The arrest that led to protests in La Mesa has now led to charges against a former police officer and a conversation with an independent filmmaker who started out at UC San Diego. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. As the number of new COVID cases skyrockets in California, efforts to speed up vaccine distribution are increasing. Governor Gavin Newsom says only about 35% of the more than a million doses the state has received have been administered so far, a number he admits is far too low. So more locations and additional people who can administer the shot, like dentists and members of the National Guard, are being recruited to pick up the pace. Joining me is one of the San Diego doctors on the state vaccine safety panel, Dr. Rodney Hood, president and founder of the Multicultural Health Foundation, a consortium of health providers serving San Diego County's most diverse neighborhoods. Dr. Hood, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. What are some of the roadblocks being encountered that are slowing down vaccinations in the state? Well, I I think, uh, first of all, the uh, uh, lack of uh, uh, nationalized uh, vaccination plan. I think uh, early on, uh, we kind of missed the mark where uh, we didn't uh, put in place a uh, national plan that would be consistent uh, from the federal level down to the state level. That didn't take place. And so what happened is as the uh, vaccines became available and the distribution to the states took place, 
it was kind of like every state and every county was kind of on their own. So um, I think that's kind of a, a hint of the lack of uh, public health infrastructure that we had in place. Our system was more built for acute care rather than preventive. So hopefully we'll uh, learn from that. However, uh, in uh, California, um, uh, although uh, I agree with the uh, governor, the uh, rollout and getting vaccinations into the arms of the ones that needed it has been a little bit slower than we'd like. But I can tell you here in uh, San Diego County, I think we're making uh, great progress. Does the process of getting this vaccine actually take longer than other kinds of vaccinations? Uh, Yes, for uh, several reasons. First of all, we call this a nouveau virus. It's a new virus. It's just been approved. It's been approved for emergency use. So um, it, it's, uh, there's some nuances. The main issue is probably storage. So uh, the Pfizer vaccine, for instance, needs to be stored in sub-zero temperatures, minus 70 uh, centigrade uh, degrees, and it comes packaged in 1,000. So when it gets to the uh, distribution source and they break it down and say you put it in a, a freezer, uh, it needs to be used within five days. And then once when you prepare it, it needs to be used in uh, six hours. So there's um, uh, a lot of uh, distribution issues. The Moderna vaccine, which does uh, is, is much better as far as not requiring sub-zero, still has some uh, limitations. So, um, uh, and this also being a new vaccine, it's not like the flu vaccine where you just go to your doctor's office and everybody is prepared to kind of give it. Uh, there's uh, PPE equipment that's needed because we're in a, a pandemic and there's certain protocols that you need to follow. So, uh, yes, uh, this, this is different, and I think that that's added to the difficulty. What is your reaction to the state's proposal to increase the number of sites the vaccine is available and to expand the types of people who can administer the shots? So I think all hands on deck. I think it's a great uh, concept right now. I think adding uh, dentists as uh, vaccinators and anybody else who can would be a great help. I can tell you here, and there's a uh, local vaccination advisory group, which I also am on. There are three chairs, one um, representing hospitals. I represent clinics and uh, uh, community and then the county. And uh, we're tasked with making recommendations to the county. And um, we had uh, several meetings, got a lot of feedback. And basically, uh, I believe uh, we're having another meeting today. And what's going to be announced today is that the county has opened up what we're calling regional vaccination pods, because it's uh, easier to have uh, strategic pods rather than trying to get it to the small practices because of the uh, storage issues. Uh, These regional vaccination pods will be open seven days a week. Um, it will uh, target phase uh, 1A, all the uh, tiers right now, which is finishing up 1A tier 1. Uh, and uh, I believe the uh, sites will be posted on the uh, county uh, website. So it will be like in the north, east, south, and central areas where folks in uh, uh, tier 1 through tier uh, 3 uh, in, in phase 1 will be able to go to get uh, vaccinated. So that's uh, one of the things that I think is going to speed up the uh, process. And with adding vaccinators to this, that would make it easier. Uh, the county is also partnering with the uh, fire departments. And there are different uh, fire departments throughout the uh, county that will be uh, prepared to do a vaccination. 
And uh, last but not least, uh, the county is developing partnerships with the hospitals. Those are currently in a discussion, but I know one is with uh, UCSD. Uh, UCSD, uh, the hospitals have larger capacity and more efficient at kind of giving these uh, vaccines versus trying to get all of the uh, small clinics uh, together. Eventually that will take place. So uh, I'm hoping that with developing these hospital partnerships in the regional pods, that's going to make things go easier in the next couple of weeks. You know, uh, some hospitals, speaking of hospitals, they're reporting a significant percentage of healthcare workers who are refusing to get vaccinated. I'm wondering what's your take on that? So I don't call it refusing. I call it hesitancy. Um, uh, I am... you know, that's one of the issues that uh, uh, I've been dealing with for a long time. Vaccine hesitancy is not new. That is not new for this vaccine. Uh, in minority communities, especially black communities, there's always been a huge vaccine hesitancy, uh, starting with the uh, flu vaccine. So uh, that's not a surprise. And I use the word hesitancy because most of these individuals, once when you have a conversation with them about um, uh, the uh, pros and cons of getting uh, vaccinated to risk of kind of getting the COVID and versus getting uh, vaccinated, many times that, that uh, hesitancy is uh, overcome. Uh, personally, I just got vaccinated uh, yesterday. Um, I, I had a conversation with my staff who was also to get vaccinated. And there were uh, several who uh, said, I, I think I'm gonna wait because I'm, I'm just concerned. Many of them were females who were concerned about what that would have to do with the reproductive uh, systems, et cetera. But uh, they weren't saying no. They just stating that they needed to hear more. So I think as time goes on, um, uh, that will become less of an issue. You know, even though we are at a critical point in this pandemic, are there risks in rushing vaccinations? Well, um, I, I, I think uh, there's always risk. You know, we jump in a car, we put on a seatbelt. Uh, even though you had the seatbelt on, there's always a risk that something terrible will happen in the seatbelt. They're not the safe. Um, so uh, medicine is always about risk benefit. And yes, this is a new vaccine. Um, I think uh, emergency use means it's been approved sooner than usual, but the safety and research data was not rushed. So getting to this point quicker had to do with the science that was uh, utilized to kind of get us there, very impressive science. And then, uh, but uh, through research, I think the Pfizer had uh, over uh, 40,000 participants, which is a significant group to get data from. And the Moderna had over 30,000, both of which uh, showed uh, safety and efficacy. Um, Ordinarily, you may want more than two to three months data, but then you take the risk of what do we know about the uh, pandemic? Right now, folks should know that our health system, especially in California, is hugely impacted by this. Um, the the uh, hospital uh, systems and ICUs are severely impacted and it's beginning to uh, affect the quality of care that you get when you go to the hospital, not just for COVID patients, but for non-COVID patients, having heart attacks and strokes, most of the beds are being taken up by COVID patients. You're just not getting the care that you need to. So um, uh, I think uh, vaccination is one of the tools that will help us. We keep saying there's light at the end of the tunnel, 
uh, our goal is to see more people reach the light at the end of the tunnel. Right now, if um, uh, the vaccinations would help that take place. And I have been speaking with Dr. Rodney Hood, president and founder of the Multicultural Health Foundation. Dr. Hood, thank you. You're welcome, and thanks for having me. The California American Legion says it has no room for hate in its membership after removing the Escondido Post commander from national leadership roles over social media posts. The organization says 56-year-old Michael Sobchak bragged on social media about participating in a street brawl and joining the Proud Boys. Joining me now is Andrew Dyer, a reporter who covers the military and veteran issues for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Andrew, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. What can you tell me about Sobchak's posts? He uses uh, he appears to use uh, two social media accounts, one on Facebook and one on Parler, which is uh, an alternative version, kind of like Twitter. You know, for a while, um, he appears to have been pretty active in talking about his uh, affiliation with the Proud Boys, uh, boosting Proud Boys on on Parler. Um, he likes to post these uh, Facebook live videos where he talks about politics or his form of, of activism. Mm. Now, Sobchak has been removed from national leadership roles with the American Legion. Do you have any sense of if the local chapter will take the same action? The state commander here in California was kind of limited in, in what he could do um, about Sobchak. Um, you know, they removed him from his seat on a couple of national boards. Uh, but as far as uh, his position as commander of that post in Escondido, um, it's it's really up to the members there to uh, to oust him, so to speak. You know, Sobchak has been um, a leader in the American Legion for, for a long time in California, uh, especially with its, it, you know, he rides a motorcycle, so he's been active in the American Legion riders and how does this situation reflect uh, the culture of the Escondido Post of the American Legion? I really would hesitate to to say that it reflects in any way on that post. Veterans joined the American Legion for a number of reasons. Reviewing their their website and some of his his posts on the website, everything that I've seen from him in his American Legion role seemed standard stuff for what you would expect from an organization like that. Um, there was nothing in, in that he did in that role that um, appeared influenced or um, promoting any type of politics. And it's beyond politics. It's it's uh, seeping into hate, as was pointed out by uh, national leadership with this organization, correct? Right. Um, you know, the, the Proud Boys, um, the, the SPLC, call them a hate group. But right, they, they do fall under this broad umbrella of, of the uh, kind of right-wing extremist movement that we're, we're seeing in this country right now. In your story, you mentioned a post where Michael Sobchak said the Proud Boys filled a void for him after retiring from the military. Have you encountered other ex-military who have gravitated toward these far-right hate groups? You know, there's anecdotally, I, I do hear uh, accounts of, of veterans joining these groups uh, experts who study extremist movements, you know, they'll tell you that um, every time we uh, kind of have a, a conflict overseas, when, when people come back, there tends to be a rise in membership in, in these type of groups. Um, you know, we saw it after after the Vietnam War. We saw it in the mid-90s. 
Well, it is. It has been widely reported, at least, that hate groups have certainly gravitated toward the military. What do you know about that? Well, yeah, um, there have been um, active duty military members caught um, being members of, of various groups, going from just po- throwing, putting up flyers in, in their their towns, um, all the way to actually planning um, attacks. Uh, are hate groups in San Diego County seeing an uptick in membership? There's certainly been um, an increase in kind of reactionary community groups forming um, in response to some of the unrest that we saw in the wake of the, the killing of, of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. Um, of course, we had the big protest in, in La Mesa that uh, turned violent and there was um, some buildings burned. That particular incident did spawn kind of community organization groups to to get together and, and to go and, and kind of stand watch over businesses. Are they community now, organizations or are they hate groups? They are community groups that you'll have a few members in a large group who might be extremists or members of other groups. And it's kind of a way for that ideology to seep in to become more mainstream, but I, I would not define these groups specifically as hate groups. It, it's it's clear from when you look at the activities in these groups and the conversations people have that there is um, hateful ideology being being shared. You know, you also mentioned in your report that Sobchak was seen in social media posts with a Defend East County shirt on. What can you tell us about that group and, and who are they and what are they trying to accomplish? The Defendees County is one of these groups that started right after the big protest in, in La Mesa. Um, it was the largest uh, of, of those groups um, at its peak. It had more than 22,000 members. But in the run-up to the election, the group was removed from Facebook. And um, its members have been trying to reorganize since then. You know, this kind of deplatforming that Facebook did on, on Defendees County has been fairly effective. They've struggled. To- and finally, how does the Southern Poverty Law Center define the Proud Boys? Tell me about that. And certainly members of the Proud Boys um, espouse white nationalist and white supremacist ideology. But um, as an organization, you know, they call themselves uh, Western chauvinists. And Western culture is a euphemism for, for white culture. So it's certainly there in, you know, right under the surface. You don't have to but you know their 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 leader is a, a, a black Cuban from Florida. Um, if they're a hate group, then they hate the left um, in general, right? They, they so um, if, if they're a hate group, it's it's that they they kind of hate liberalism, the left, and 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 women. Mm, per your reporting, the Southern Poverty Law Center classifies the Proud Boys as a hate group. Uh, Andrew Dyer military and veterans issue reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. 
Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. He's been fired, his employment appeal has been denied, and now former La Mesa police officer Matthew Dadges is facing a felony charge. Dadges is accused of falsifying a police report after his arrest of 23-year-old Amari Johnson last May. A video of the arrest with a white officer repeatedly pushing down the black man at a trolley stop set off protests in La Mesa and across the county. Charges against Johnson were subsequently dropped. Joining me is KPBS reporter Joe Hong. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. Remind us, if you would, about the video of this arrest. What did we see? Yeah, um, so in Dadges' body cam footage, you see him sort of approach Omri Johnson, and you see Dadges sort of place his hand on uh, Omri, and Omri Johnson sort of uh, swats away his hand, and that is what Dadges uh, interpreted as assault on a peace officer. And from there, uh, things sort of escalate. You see Dadges grab the front of Omri Johnson's shirt. You see him uh, pulling Johnson's arm around his back and handcuffing him. And he's eventually joined by a couple other officers um, who help handcuff Johnson as well. Now, DA Summer Steffens has charged Dadges with lying on his report about the incident. Did the DA say why the felony charges were filed? Yeah, so all we really got from the, the DA's office is a statement saying that Dadges is charged with one felony count of filing false report. So we can really assume that that means that the reason for the arrest, which was assaulting a, a peace officer, was was not true, or that's sort of the allegation. And um, in her statement, Summer Stefan says, I'm reading from the statement, uh, when someone in a position of trust, uh, such as a police officer, commits a crime, it causes tremendous harm and shakes the community's confidence in those who are sworn to protect them. Everyone is accountable under the law, and as we've done previously, we will file criminal charges when they are supported by facts and evidence. Okay, then. So this arrest, which involved the manhandling of a black man in La Mesa, happened right at the time the country was reeling from the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. Tell us about the protests here in San Diego. This incident with uh, Amr Johnson and Matthew Dadges happened on May 27th, and I believe the day after, there was a small protest in front of the La Mesa Police Department's office. But just a couple days later, the video of George Floyd's uh, killing at the hands of Minneapolis police uh, surfaced. So La Mesa then became one of the epicenters, I guess, in uh, the San Diego region for the nationwide protests. What we really saw was uh, just really unprecedented demonstrations in La Mesa, thousands of people gathering on Memorial Day weekend. And of course, later in the evening, uh, some of the some of the individuals participating in largely peaceful protests later in the evening um, got a little violent. Uh, there was looting, there was destruction of, of buildings and local businesses and things like that. And in fact, the DA charged two men back in November with the burning of a bank in La Mesa during those protests. What has the La Mesa Police Department said about the charges filed against Matthew Dadges? 
So the Mason Police Department, I got a statement from uh, the current acting chief of police, Ray Sweeney. Um, I'm going to read from his statement. Uh, the Mesa Police Department is aware of the announcement made by the district attorney's office this morning regarding the issuing of charges against former La Mesa police officer Matthew Dadges. We have worked closely with the San Diego district attorney's office over the past several months on this matter. The La Mesa Police Department holds each and every member of the department to the highest standards of integrity in order to protect and serve our community and keep its trust. So it, the police chief here is sort of echoing what um, the DA's office said. They're cooperating with the investigation and they're, they're really working to rebuild trust with the community. Has there been any response from Matthew Dadges himself? Uh, no, I, I haven't been able to reach him. I haven't seen anything where he's coming out and, and reacting to the charge. Have we heard from Amari Johnson about this? I think he has always said that he wanted charges filed against this officer. Yeah, so he, uh, Johnson posted a, a brief statement on, on social media, just sort of thanking everyone for their support. And I, I'm just going to read from a, a part of his statement. He says, I'm thankful for the DA's decision to pursue charges against former officer Dadges. Uh, now it's time for this drawn-out legal process. I'll do my part to make sure there's justice. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. So it looks like, in the end, uh, Johnson sees this as as him sort of getting justice for what he went through. Is it rare for the DA's office to charge an officer or former officer with filing a false report? Yeah, so this is definitely something that doesn't happen every day. But uh, the uh, spokeswoman with the DA's office did tell me that uh, since 2009, this is the fifth time that uh, a police officer has been charged with falsifying a, a report. And if he's convicted, is Dadges facing jail time? Yes. So if he is convicted, Dadges faces up to three years in prison, according to the DA's office. And I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Joe Hong. And Joe, thank you. Thanks for having me. The Colorado River irrigates some of the country's most productive farmland, like that found in the Imperial Valley. But agriculture in the arid region, especially upstream, is made more difficult by its salty and old-school irrigation methods that send harmful minerals into streams. From KVNF in western Colorado, Jody Peterson has more on a program that's helping upstream farmers use more water efficiently to keep downstream growers in business. A.J. Carrillo farms 18 acres outside of Hotchkiss, Colorado where fruit orchards dot high desert mesas. When he irrigates his peach crop, water gushes from big white plastic pipes at the top of the plot and takes half a day to trickle down to the other end of his five-acre orchard. We're on 18 acres here. We have a half-acre market garden. We have a small uh, grass alfalfa. This is called flood irrigation. And while it works great to get water to fruit trees quickly, it comes with some downsides. One of the big concerns that we have in the North Fork Valley is that our irrigation leads to deep percolation. And that deep percolation dissolves the salt and selenium that occur naturally in soils here. The minerals are harmful to both fish and humans. The excess water runs off farm fields like Carrillo's into ditches that eventually dump into the Gunnison River, a tributary of the Colorado. 
And so we have a, a serious ecological issue going on here. Selenium is known to have an impact on um, fish breeding such that the offspring end up with deformities and, um, and other problems. That's Perry Cabot, a water resources specialist with Colorado State University. He says salt creates problems too and must be removed before water can be used for drinking or industrial purposes, which is expensive. Cabot says salty irrigation water can stunt crop growth and eventually make farmland unusable. If you continue to sort of leach these salts out of the upper systems of a river, you concentrate them further and further, so it's just this kind of creeping soil killer as it makes its way downstream. During the 1960s, so much salt flowed into the Colorado River from U.S. farms that Mexico, at the downstream end, could no longer use it for irrigation. A solution was finally negotiated in the 1970s, but it's an ongoing issue. Other laws have since been passed, and federal programs have been created that give farmers incentive to reduce salty runoff from their fields. Casey Harrison is a soil conservationist with the Federal Natural Resources Conservation Service, or NRCS. We have um, the ability through federal funds to help farmers and ranchers improve their irrigation water delivery systems so that we can actually combat some of those problems with selenium and salinity in the Colorado River Basin. That federal financial support is key. The costs of installing new irrigation systems can't be borne by farmers alone. Annually, the NRCS spends about $7 million, helping roughly 75 Gunnison Basin producers cover the cost of converting to more efficient irrigation. Farmers pay part of the cost, too, and benefit from greater control over water usage, higher crop yields, and less labor. Again, Colorado State University's Perry Cabot. But if we as a society value food production as a part of our economic infrastructure, it's unrealistic to expect them to just bear the burden without societal help. Back in farmer A.J. Carrillo's peach orchards, change is coming. His deer tree farm will have a new, more efficient irrigation system by fall 2021, paid for in part by the NRCS. His switch to micro-sprinklers will mean much more efficient water use and healthier soil. That irrigation system will effectively double our water supply here on this farm. A total game changer in my opinion. Even though Carrillo's farm is small, the switch also means less salt and selenium ending up in the Colorado River. And if enough of his neighbors make the same change, it could mean fewer problems for the millions of people downstream who depend on it. I'm Jody Peterson in Paonia, Colorado. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KVNF in partnership with KUNC. Support comes from the Walton Family Foundation. Climate change was top of mind for many people in 2020. Wildfires torched California, and a record number of hurricanes slapped the East Coast. The city of Stockton recently made headway in efforts to cope with warming temperatures. CAP Radio's Ezra David Romero has more about a new city initiative meant to help the most vulnerable San Joaquin residents adapt. A few blocks away from downtown Stockton, there's an urban forest of about 40 trees. 
Sammy Nunez's nonprofit, Fathers and Families of San Joaquin, planted it. He says an investment in the environment is an investment in people. The way we treat the land and disregard for the land is the way we treat families and children here in this community. And because of it, the land is hardened, the people are hardened. Nunez says urban forests like this will be a big part of an $11 million state grant that Stockton received to combat climate change. He was part of a community process that helped map out the new initiative. He says this particular green space was created to remember victims of gun violence. Now it serves two purposes, cooling this neighborhood's heat island and paying homage to fallen family members. This is about creating a, an opportunity for folks to heal and connect to the natural world and understand the value in the, of these trees. The hope is that there will be many more green spaces like this under the new Stockton Climate Initiative. The money will be used to make the city more walkable, less reliant on fossil fuels, and create more green space in vulnerable neighborhoods. Nunes wants the initiative to have long-term impacts. We know that the design of a community in and of itself can actually be deterrent to crime and violence. We know that the more trees you have, the less crime you have in the neighborhood. We know that. Nunes walked me through downtown to show me how the grant may transform the cityscape. So this is census tract 4.02 and 1. The paved streets here may soon have bike lanes and tree-lined sidewalks. The grant will also help create more green jobs and increase household solar energy. Schools will have urban farming classes. Climate change, the social political climate has collided to create the perfect opportunity for us to really reimagine what it means to be a person of color in Stockton nowadays. Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs says the purpose of the grant is to ensure that all city residents benefit from the climate work. Even though his term ends in January, he wants to see the city become an oasis while it's climbing out of bankruptcy and still grappling with gun violence. I want Stockton to be the community that shows what a Green New Deal looks like in terms of tangible benefits. Stockton-based environmental advocate Barbara Barragon Priya says planting trees in parts of the city where there are few will tangibly change residents' lives during heat waves. It's already 10, 12 degrees warmer in South Stockton every year than in North Stockton. However, she says the grant is just the beginning and doesn't address all the threats of climate change here. Algae in the Delta can harm humans and animals. Sea level rise would threaten community members who live behind levees. Back in the healing garden, a block away from the freeway, the sound of cars and big rigs pervade the air. I'm wrapping up the interview with Nunes, not because there's nothing left to talk about. It's just so hot. But before we go, Nunes has one more thing to say. We represent every single demographic and market in the world here. If it works here, it could work anywhere. That's the good news. The bad news is the opposite. If it doesn't work here, it's not going to work anywhere. Nunez could have left Stockton for a city with fewer problems, but he loves this place. When he looks at Stockton, he sees all the bad. But then what comes into view is hope. In Stockton, I'm Ezra David Romero. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando has been following filmmaker Marvin Choi for more than a decade. Ever since she saw his inventive short film, Said Black, at a UCSD student film showcase. In 2014, she donated to his Kickstarter campaign, and last year, that film, A Night Tour, finally got a digital release. She speaks to the UCSD alum about the journey of making an independent film. Marvin, I got to meet you through UCSD and a student film screening. So tell me a little bit about UCSD in terms of you went to film school there and how did you feel about what kind of an education you got and how that prepared you kind of for what you're doing now? Going to UCSD in general was kind of fascinating just because I actually didn't uh, graduate with a degree in film. Uh, I had a minor in film. But my my major degree was actually in uh, cognitive science. Uh, there was a point in my life where I actually was trying to be a, a scientist. I'd always wanted to make films to some degree before, though. So I just decided to casually kind of just approach the film department. And they were like, yeah, sure, just take classes. We don't care. And then two very uh, helpful professors there were uh, J.P. Gorin and uh, Babette Mangolti. Uh, they kind of, especially Babette, she was just she was very much in the 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 vein of you just want to make stuff right and I was like yeah she's like okay you normally we don't let people who take minors do the production classes but if you want to you want to I'll authorize everything it was very freeing in that way because it because it wasn't like my major it didn't feel like work it felt a lot like I'm just having fun with friends so that's that's kind of how I got into filmmaking at UCSD it was just like this environment where because there were very supporting professors like it was kind of just allowed to do whatever I wanted to do to some extent, yeah. Well, it makes sense that you were going into cognitive science because your films seem to always be interested kind of in psychological processes and (laughs) the inner workings of the characters. So you actually kickstarted a film, a feature film, which is now being released video on demand and streaming, and this is A Night's Tour. So talk a little bit about that process of doing a Kickstarter to try and make a film. A lot of people view Kickstarter as a, as a source of like, oh, hey, it's free money. But what it really is, is you're actually deciding to temporarily have a full-time job. And you kind of spend all of your time trying to make sure that this campaign that you're working on gathers enough money. And in, and in our case, we had a very modest goal. The movie itself wasn't going to be extremely expensive. We just needed enough money to cover the rest of it. So we were just only asking for $6,000. And even that's a lot of work. Even when you're asking your various social networks and you're reaching out to like other forums that you think might be interested. And it's a lot of work, but you know, it's gratifying because you start off knowing that you kind of have someone of an audience already built in. So you already are starting to make a film for somebody. It's not just for yourself. It makes it a much more different experience when, you know, especially if up to that point, I was making a lot of these shorts and random other little projects kind of just for my own entertainment. And now it's like, oh, I really have 
a commitment to these people. I really need to deliver for them. Uh, so we, we, it turned into almost like a social contract where I'm trying to make this movie as good as possible for them. And I want, that, want it to be something that not only am I proud of, but that's something I, I know my Kickstarter backers would be happy to see. How long a process was this from the time that you wrote the script and decided to make a Kickstarter to today when it's actually being available? Oh, boy. Too long. Because <laughs> I we ran a Kickstarter back, I think, in at this point, 2013. This was actually for my thesis film at CalArts. Uh, after I went to UCSD, I did my grad school at CalArts. Even though CalArts is very freeing, uh, there's not a lot of, like most film schools, there isn't like a lot of direct backing for um, financial backing for your films. So we had to go through the Kickstarter route to try to uh, close the rest of the gap. Um, but the process started in 2013, and we didn't really finish editing to a lock until 2018, <laughs> so in the summer. It's basically five years. A lot of this has kind of been a labor of love of me. And uh, my partner, Sarah, who is my producer, we're just kind of slowly chipping away at this movie, you know, going through all the, the motions in post. And like we spent the better course of probably four years between me and Sarah just making sure this movie was OK. So this film started many years before our current pandemic hit. <laughs> yeah. However, it's a film that's very kind of claustrophobic, two characters, pretty much in one location. So how do you feel about the film releasing right now and, and kind of tapping into some of the, the mood and anxiety of what people are currently feeling? Because it's kind of a futuristic, post-apocalyptic kind of a, a format. So it's it's interesting because I had originally written it that way because back when I first wrote it, I was going through kind of like this bout of loneliness and depression where writing the screenplay was sort of a bit of therapy. It, um, if you took an extreme version of one of the characters, Henry, um, that would be me. If you if you took me and made it really extreme, that would end up being Henry. What exactly were you doing out there before you stumbled upon my cabin? You mean, like, my job? Yeah. There still are jobs these days. Yeah, there's still jobs. Mine was, uh, working as a scout. Yeah. And what does a scout do? Well, for example, say I come across a, an old store or a house that hasn't really been touched since the outbreak. I, of course, take what I can for myself, but obviously it's too much for just me. So I keep track on how to find it, and when I come across an interested party, I make a trade. It's, it's usually a, a good way of helping a local community find more supplies, and in return they give me protection and shelter. And that works? Yeah, when you're as good as I am, it does. It's a living. Tell people a little bit about what the storyline is in the film. So basically, it's it's a it's in a post-apocalyptic setting where it's not clear what the source of the post-apocalypse has been, but it's been some sort of outbreak, viral viral outbreak, which is oddly prescient. Uh, it wasn't expected to, <laughs> to work out that way, 
And it's sort of in a future where nature has kind of re-overtaken what a lot of civilization used to be. And the movie starts off with this character named JD who is just running through the mountains, running away from something. And he ends up in front of a cabin he had never seen before. He thinks it might be empty, so he tries to go in. And it turns out to be occupied by a man who has been living there by himself for a very long time named Henry. And even though there's a lot of contention at first, you know, Henry's desire to finally have a friendship with someone along with JD's innate curiosity about why Henry is here and how long he's been here starts but uh starts to create a friendship between the two of them but as human nature sometimes comes to a head for there's a lot there's feelings of paranoia about who jd might be on henry's part and there's always the threat of other people coming from the outside world right because henry hadn't really ever seen anyone for such a long time so that's kind of what the setting is it's these two characters who are very different um because jd is a lot more outgoing. He wants to be a traveler. He is younger, whereas Henry is an older guy who has basically been living by himself in isolation for a number of years. And if you put them together, I wanted to see what would happen if these two extreme types of characters are put together. And that's essentially the movie. And how do you think the film is playing now while so many people are sheltering at home and quarantined? It's been interesting. Uh, a lot of people uh, have been saying like, it's like the, the, there's a lot of similar feelings of loneliness. They identify with the Henry character because he's been living alone for so long. But I think it's also not nice for a lot of people because they see that even under trying circumstances, like uh, for, at least from the feedback I've been hearing from people is like, uh, it's interesting how, you know, un even under trying circumstances, these characters want to kind of form a friendship together. And even though there are circumstances that kind of force that apart, human nature isn't necessarily just entirely about breaking down. There is some aspect of we can try to make better out of it. Um, <laughs> it's just interesting watching people um, react and see how they are watching um, these two characters interact in such an extreme way under such extreme circumstances. Now, one thing that I admire about the way you approach the film is that when you're making a first feature, sometimes you kind of con conceive of something that's bigger than what you are capable of doing. And you smartly decided to create a story that allows you to stay in a fairly limited location and not have to tap into a lot of actors. So was that something that was the practicality of making a first feature something that you were considering when you were writing the script? Oh, for sure. We were definitely considering the practicality of it being a first feature with such a limited budget. So Robert Rodriguez had this really good book, Rebel Without a Crew, where he describes the way he made his first feature um, El Mariachi. And it's very much along the lines of, okay, what do you have access to? And what do you find most valuable in a movie? And you and you put that forward. For Robert Rodriguez, it was a lot of like, he wanted it to be cool with lots of action with great editing and sound design, right? In my case, the thing that I value the most from movies, the movies I love the most are the ones that have performances that are gripping and make you almost forget that you're watching a movie and that you're kind of stuck with characters and following their psychology and their motivations and 
their feelings. So luckily, that type of motivation is easy enough for a budget film if you have the right actors. So the the actual script itself was an idea I've been throwing around for a while. It's just when it came time to make it the first feature, I was like, this is doable. And it also helped that I had Sarah with me, my producer, who was with me every step of the way and made sure that all of my, you know, weird shortcomings and neuroses about the logistical side of things, she could stay on top of it and um, that the actors I was choosing was right. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your film and night's tour. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. I really appreciate it. That was filmmaker Marvin Joy, a UC San Diego alum, speaking to KPBS film critic Beth Accomando. His film, A Night's Tour, is available to stream on Prime Video, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.